Hello, and welcome to a new episode of A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you on a chronological journey throughout Swedish history, and we've now reached the middle of the 1200s. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa, and today we're picking up where we left off last week, and then actually going back a bit to give you the backstory to one of the most iconic characters in Swedish history, Björn Magnusson, or as he'll be known in the history books, Björn Jarl. Yes, Birger Jarl and the political events during his life is what will take up most of our time for this and probably the next episode as well, because he's a very interesting person with a very full life. And if you think it's a bit noisy or perhaps windy right now, well, that's because we're standing on his square, or at least the square that carries his name. Yes, we're on Björjörjals toy, or Björjörjals square, on the Riddarholmen island in central Stockholm. We're surrounded by lots of beautiful 17th and 18th century buildings, including the old parliament building and the Vrangelska Palace. And a building that's almost contemporary to where we are in the podcast chronology, the Riddarholmen Church from roughly the year 1300. Yes, that's only half a century or so on from the events of today's episode. Now, Birger Square has not been called that for quite as long as it's been around. It got the name in 1854. That was also the year when a statue of the man himself, which is right in front of us now, and made by sculptor Bengt Erland Fulguberg, was put up on the square. So let's have a look at the statue now. It's um, probably 15, 10 metres tall. On a, oh, well, the, the plinth is 10 metres tall, and then the statue is just sort of slightly larger than life-size. And he's green now. He's, yeah, he's very green with a lot of black over him because he's made out of copper, probably, and he's now uh, sort of not stood the test of time. Yeah, but he does look very forceful. He's wearing, like, a cape, and he's got a helmet on, and he's sort of got his arms resting on a sword and then there's uh, he's got his shield in front of him as well and very stern looking face and he's wearing some armor on his shins as well um, so yeah he looks like a very ruler type kind of guy and on the column of the statue it says of Birger Jarl and then it has the somewhat dubious claim of Stockholm's founder um, which we talked about in the episode on the beginnings of Stockholm but it didn't really just appear out of nowhere Stockholm but some people like to give Birger Jarl the credit. Yeah and not a lot of people from as early in history as the 1200s get things like squares named after them so it goes to show what an important figure Birger Jarl was in uh, early Swedish history, still is. Uh, in fact, he doesn't just have this square named after him. There is also a street, Björjörsgatan, here in Stockholm, about two and a half kilometers north of uh, where we're standing now. It is one of the biggest and most important roads in the city center. Yeah, and just behind one of the buildings here, there's even Jarl's tower. And in general, this square is an indication of both what a powerful figure Jarl was in his own time and how he has been remembered throughout history as really Sweden's first major statesman in Swedish politics, someone who actually was a politician rather than just a fighty king who took power and then kept on killing other people. Like we said, we're going to be dedicating the next few episodes to his life and work. But uh, as always, we should probably start with the Swedish phrase of the week. But I think for that, we should probably head home where it's quieter, less busy, uh, less windy, less cars and less um, electric scooters driving around the cobblestones. Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, I don't see why electric scooters have really taken off in uh, in Stockholm, but they have because a lot of streets are cobblestone. But yeah, right. So see you back in the flat. And now we're back in the flat. Uh, Hopefully that wasn't too noisy and windy for you. We did realise it was a bit windy once we started recording, but we had no other option. Yeah, but that was fun. I really liked that little little trip to uh, Old Town in Stockholm and see the statue of Birgeal. Yep, Um, but as we promised, it's time for a Swedish phrase. And so this week's phrase is Som man bedda får man ligga. 
So in English, that would be how you make the bed. That's how you have to lie in it. And if you're like me, you don't make the bed. Yeah, so you have to lie in an unmade bed. It, it sounds a bit strange in English, I must say. It's、uh, probably one of the stranger phrases that we've done, but the meaning is very similar to the English phrase "you reap what you sow."、Uh, it means that however you prepare, that is the result you'll get. So if someone comes back and says, "Oh, I didn't do very well on that test at school." But they haven't really studied for it at all. Then you could say "som man bedda for man liga." Exactly. What、well, you get the results depending on how you prepare for it.、Uh, there is also a slightly dirtier version of this phrase. Okay. <laughs> well, liga is Swedish for to lie down, but it's also a slang word for having sex, as in to lie with someone. Uh, or in English, we'd say to sleep with someone,、uh, even if it's implied that you do more than just sleep.、Uh, so you then take the phrase "somman bedar förman ligga" and instead say "somman raggar förman ligga." Raggar being the Swedish word for flirt or to chat someone up. So it then becomes how you do your flirting is how you get to have sex. Which is kind of the same as the original phrase, I guess. But、uh, probably time to get on with Berger Yarl as someone who did a lot of preparing. Yeah, someone who was very good at making his bed well, so that he got to lie in it comfortably,、uh, was our main man Berger Yarl. As we'll see when we go through his life, he was definitely a man with a plan, a man who knew how and when to play his cards right in order to get what he wanted. And we introduced Berger Yarl briefly at the end of our last episode, when in the 1230s Berger Yarl married King Eric's sister Ingeborg back when he was just Berger Magnusson, and then he became one of the king's closest men and headed campaigns to Finland and Novgorod before fighting off a rebellion by the Folkung faction in 1247. But it's worth going over these events again, but to see them more from Berjyar's perspective, so we can see who Berjyar was and what he did and how he did it. Because, like Orsa said, he really is one of the most important people in、uh, Swedish medieval history. First of all, before we go any further, let's just once and for all clear up some name confusion. We call him Birjo Jarl, but that's not his name. Well, his first name is Birjo, but his surname isn't Jarl. His surname is Magnusson, like Chris said, and he's a member of the powerful Bjelbo family. So Jarl isn't a name; it's a job title. And for some reason, with Bjarl, it comes after his name rather than before, like most of the others. Yeah, we've heard the term Jarl many times already in our episodes, pretty much since we entered the Middle Ages. The word actually has the same origin as the English word Earl.、Uh, it's sort of a counselor, advisor, manager in the Middle Ages in Scandinavia and in England.、Uh, the Jarls are the kings. Right-hand men, and they help implement the power of the king. In not in Sweden, but over in England,、uh, the earldom was connected to a certain area. You were jarl or earl over an area like Wessex. Previously, we've seen jarls in Sweden, like the powerful Birjo Brusa or Ulf Fosse, who we talked about in our last episode. But confusingly, when we talk about these people, their names are usually written as Jarl Ulf Fosse rather than Ulf Fosse Jarl. But for some reason, like Chris said, Björn Jarl gets the word Jarl put after his first name. And this makes it a bit confusing sometimes because Berger Jarl isn't Jarl for most of、uh, the early part of his career, and for pretty much a lot of what we're going to talk about in this episode. But even though his name throughout most of this episode is Berger Magnusson, and it, that remained his name throughout his life, we're just going to call him Berger Jarl because that's the name he goes down in history, and that's the name you should search for, or Google, or read about if you want to know more about him. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. 
Biryoyal was born in... We don't know. Yep. Like so many of the births we've had so far, including many, many of the kings, medieval Swedes were less bothered with recording dates of births than we are today. Instead, they, they focused on the date that someone died, because there was usually someone around to record it, whereas when these people mm. were born, you didn't necessarily know if this was going to be an important person or not, so they didn't bother writing it down. Yeah, and let's face it, most people don't do much interesting stuff when they're born, but by the time they've died, they might have done some interesting things that made their death date more noteworthy than their birth date. Exactly. Because of this, this means that historians have had to try and backtrack and look at the events in Boyer's life that were recorded and then sort of guess, okay, well, he was probably at least 16 or 17 when he started fighting and things like that. And then in the more modern day, historians and archaeologists have been able to do cool things like make analysis of his bones uh, 20 years ago or so when they opened up his grave. And this kind of thing has led them to conclude that he was born sometime between 1190 and 1210. So to make it a nice round number, we can say right in the middle, 1200. He grew up in the county of Östergötland, so that's south-central Sweden, on his family's estate called Bjelbo, like they were called. Björjör is born into the powerful Bjelbo family, who we've seen play an important role on the political stage for almost a century now. Björjör's uncle is the powerful Jarl Björjör Brusa, uh, who he's probably named after, because Björjör Brusa is quite likely dead by the time Björjör is born, so Björjör gets his deceased uncle's name. Björjör's other uncle is another Jarl called the Death, who died in battle over in Estonia, which we talked about in episode 34. Karl the Death's son, Ulf Fosse, is Jarl right now in our timeline, so he's Björjör's cousin. Björjör's mum and dad are called Ingrid Ulva and Magnus Minneskjöld. His father isn't really present in his life. Uh, he's either dead when Björjör is born or dies soon after. His mother, on the other hand, uh, this woman called Ingrid Ulva, is described as a resourceful and strong woman who gives her children the best upbringing possible to guarantee that they will become powerful and influential as well. Bilyar is pretty much born straight into power. The Bjelbu family has worked hard to cement their power, being kingmakers and pragmatic behind-the-scenes rulers for quite some time now. And in many ways, Berya is pretty much destined for a life of power and to be involved in politics. Birger is the youngest of his father's children. It's worth having a quick look at who Birger's siblings are, again, just to help us paint a picture of what this family was like and what they were doing. Birger has three older brothers. Eskil is a man who becomes a lawman in Vestergötland, and this is the Eskil that we talked about in our Law and Order episodes, who helps write the Vestergöta Law, Sweden's first ever written down legal text that we've mentioned quite a few times so far. Then there's Karl and Bengt, who seem to have a bit of a monopoly over being bishops of Linköping and being powerful figures in the church. Karl went with King Johan on that disastrous campaign to Estonia and died there with his uncle Karl in 1220. Bengt, on the other hand, lives a lot longer and succeeds his brother as bishop and is the one in charge of the rebuilding of Linköping Cathedral in 1237, and he's the person we called Bishop Bjelbu in the last episode, just because there were other bishops also called Bengt. Bia also has an unknown number of sisters, who we don't really know anything about because, well, they're women, and, and history has an unfortunate habit of being written by men and focusing on the men in the story. Mm. Uh, it's quite likely, considering the age difference, that not all of the brothers had the same mother. And it's also likely that uh, he had another half-brother, meaning that his mother had a new man after Magnus Minnesjöld's death and got another son, uh, so a half-brother of Bielos called Elof. 
Uh, we don't know much about Elof. He seems to have led a different kind of life from the others, which is why historians think he wasn't actually part of this powerful Bielbo family as such, but rather someone who was on their mother's side. So this is the family that Bial is born into. And unfortunately, we don't know much about his early life. He doesn't really appear in any of the records until the late 1220s and early 1230s. We can just assume he grew up, played with other kids and members of the family, learned to read and write, ride horses and fight with swords. When he starts to appear in the sources, he's described as one of the men around King Eric. After all, his cousin is the Jarl, he himself is a young man from a powerful family, and he's been brought up to be a part of that life. So it's perhaps natural that he would end up sort of floating around the king. One thing that will change Birger Jarl from being just one of the men around the king to being the man around the king is the fact that he marries the king's sister, Ingeboy. We don't know exactly when this happens, but it will have been in the early 1230s. Marriage, as we know, at this time, and especially for this group in society, is much more a political game and a power play than it is a union of two people who are in love. Uh, that being said, Bioyo and Ingeboy seem to have gotten on okay, and who knows, perhaps they even grew to love each other. And with his marriage to Ingeborg, Bioyo's status increases even more, partly because of this and partly because he seems to have a real talent for politics and war. Bioyo soon becomes the king's representative for going around the country and solving various local disputes. And remember, this is a time when you have to be physically present to show your power. In order for the king to show that he ruled the land, he had to be present in places, or at least send someone to represent him. The system of a nation-state still wasn't really that ingrained in society, and it therefore required a different kind of presence as it does today. And the Swedish Prime Minister today doesn't have to go up to Luleå in the far north himself if there's a problem there, or send someone to represent himself personally, because he can trust that the people living there will solve it in accordance to the legal system and within the system of the state that's around them, because it's so ingrained in our society. His medieval counterparts, however, the kings and the jarls, couldn't quite trust this system because it was still relatively weak. Yeah, that's why the royal court was mobile. It went round places rather than always sat in the same palace. And that's why you need people like Bielajal who went round and represented the institution of the state, the king and its power. The most famous of these local disputes that Bielajal was sent to resolve happened down in Smorland in 1238. At the time, and well, up to 1658, Småland was the most southerly county in Sweden, because remember, Skåne and Blekinge, the southern tip of the Scandinavian peninsula, belonged to Denmark at this time. The dispute that Bergegaard sent to fix involved local farmers and the monks at Nidala Abbey. Basically, the monks and the farmers couldn't agree on who should have some access and control over some forest nearby. The farmers said that the forest had always been theirs, whereas the monks said that they needed the forest for their beekeeping and various other things to do with the abbey. Birger solution to the problem itself isn't really that amazing. Essentially, the farmers and the monks just got half of the land each that they'd been fighting over, so it's not exactly a show of amazing negotiation skills, but rather it's the fact that Birger manages to resolve the situation with both parties being kind of pleased, the church has been kept on side and the power of the crown upheld, which shows you that he's succeeded in his task. It's also important, as this is the first example we have of Bergeyal using this authority to take decisions. And that really is the skill that will make Bergeyal the political figure that he becomes. He makes sure that the church was kept on side, that the power of the king, and by extension the Yaldum, was always upheld or strengthened, 
and he got results that all sides could live with, or at least had to live with. Those are the sort of three legs of his political life. He manages to do things that succeed in all those three variables. Next in Pierre-Yoyal's work calendar, we imagine he had one of those calendars and online. It, it pings up with a little bell 15 minutes before your appointment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he clicked dismiss and went off on to a campaign in Finland and eventually all the way to Novgorod, where the Swedes were defeated by Prince Alexander at the Battle of Neva on the 15th of July, 1240. Now, we covered this campaign in the East quite extensively in our last episode, including a long quote from the Novgorod Chronicle, so if you haven't listened to that, I recommend you do. But one thing we didn't mention in that episode is that some people believe that Bergegaard sustained a wound to his face in the battle when he was slashed by a sword, and so for the rest of his life he has a big scar on his face, calling him Scarface. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, if this is true, it indicates that Bergegaard either led from the front and wasn't a commander who hung back and got involved in the fighting directly, or the Novgorodians were a bit sneaky and uh, managed to ambush him or something but either way he was definitely involved in the fight if this was actually the case even though the swedes were ultimately defeated at neva and never managed to really crack the power of novgorod the campaign itself did mean that swedish influence and in particular the power of the swedish monarch was further entrenched on the other side of the Baltic Sea in what is today Finland. Uh, If the Swedes ever wanted to go further east, they needed to first solidify their power and presence in Finland and not rush ahead to Novgorod like they did this time. They realized this after this campaign, and that meant that they now worked on building more fortresses in Finland from which the Swedes could exert their power, but also protect land that was now considered theirs as a result of Beljajal's campaign. And Christianity was further entrenched in the area, bringing that part of southern Finland more into a pan-European Catholic community. And we'll return to more on Finland in a special Finland-centred episode pretty soon. And after that campaign in Finland in 1240, and pretty much all the way up to 1247, we don't really know much about what Beryal got up to. There's no real events or military campaigns or anything like that that we have recorded in the sources. But we do know that King Eric gets married in this period, and that his new wife Katerina is a relative of Birger's because she's his cousin's daughter. And whilst this is happening, Birger had something else to do with his time because clearly was hanging out with his wife a bit because they ended up having eight children. Well, that's nice. Nice to have some family time. Although he must have had time to squeeze in some family time even before 1240, I don't know, in between negotiations in Småland and campaigns in Finland because his oldest child was born in 1238. Either way, Bjørn and Ingeborg will eventually have four sons and four daughters. Uh, Shall we quickly run through who they are? Yes, and how about you start with the daughters, because their first child is a daughter. Yes, that's Rikissa, born around 1238 and named after her maternal grandmother. Rikissa is a classic Eric dynasty name by this point, by the way. We've had a lot of uh, Rikissas. Unfortunately, like with their dad, uh, we don't know the exact birth dates for any of Bjørjal's kids. So let's just ignore that and say that they are all born between the late 1230s and the early 1250s. Rikissa, the firstborn, will become important in the story again later, so keep her name in mind. Then there's Christina, who marries a wealthy Swedish nobleman. She is followed by Katarina and Ingeborg, who both marry German princes, so that's very good there for Swedish-German relations. 
get in there with the Germans. Uh, that seems to have been the policy of uh, the time. That's what you want to do because they're wealthy and they uh, trade a lot of stuff. Yes, they certainly do. And as for Berger's sons, the oldest one is Valdemar, followed by Magnus. Without spoiling too much again, make sure you remember these names because they'll come back in the next episode. Their third son, Eric, died when he was in his mid-twenties, and because of that, he didn't really have much time to do anything uh, to the great extent as his brothers did. And they also have a fourth son called Bengt, who follows in his uncle's and namesake's footsteps and becomes Bishop of Linshaving because it's monopolised by uh, this small branch of the family. And it also helps if you're named Bengt. Um, not just that, but he'll also get a political role later on, but uh, more on that to come. Even with eight children with his wife, Birger still had uh, time to have a long-term mistress, whose name, unfortunately, we don't know. But we do know that he had a son together called Gregors, which sounds very uh, a modern-day name, Gregors. Gregors. Uh, yeah. And uh, he became a minor nobleman, apparently, when he grew up. Yeah, he's a, he's a busy man, uh, Birger, both on the home front uh, with nine children, a wife and a mistress, but also at work, because on the political scene in 1247, the Falkungs rise up and riot again. Eventually, this results in the Battle of Sparsetra that year. Again, we talked about who the Falkungs were and why they were rebelling in our previous episode, so we'll just cover it briefly here. Birjol led the royal forces on behalf of King Erik, and for the first time in Swedish history, he used heavy cavalry. Opposing Birjol is Holmgo Knutsson, son of the previous king, Knut the Tall. Holmgo thinks he should be king because his dad was king, and he also thinks that the Bielbo family should back off a bit and that the state shouldn't be so centralised or levy such heavy taxes. And in a way, Holmgren and the Falcons represented a desire to return to an older, more local form of power and statehood in Sweden. Unfortunately for them, they're defeated in this battle and Holmger tries to flee, but is eventually captured and decapitated. And his friend, Philip Larsson, another important Falcon representative, is forced away into exile. But whilst they're defeated on the battlefield for now, it's definitely not the end of the Falcons or this general desire for some people in Sweden to rebel against the system of the state that's becoming stronger and stronger, with the power of the king becoming more extensive and spreading thanks to the Jarls. So keep this in mind as well. This is bubbling on in the background. It's also around this time that Ulf Fosse, who has been Jarl for all of Birjol's adult life, he dies. Uh, we don't know exactly when he died, and historians have debated whether he died before the Battle of Sparsetra, or after, or even during. Uh, historians are also not sure if Ulf Fosse was Jarl all the way up until his death, or if he retired, even though that concept probably didn't exist, but retired sometime before. Even if he did officially leave the Yaldum, assuming he wasn't sick or incapacitated, he would still have been the elder statesman of both the Bielbu family and Sweden as a whole. Yeah, so he probably had some sort of influence if he was still around. But either way, we don't know exactly when it happens, but we do know that when Ulfasa is dead or leaves the Jarldom, King Eric needs a new Jarl, so he turns to Birja, or as the most prominent member of the Bjalbu family, Birja Jarl demanded the position when it became vacant. In, in fact, it's been speculated that maybe Ulfasa was annoyed with Berger's increasing power both in the family and in Sweden and swapped sides and joined the Falklands and therefore either died in the battle or was killed soon after as a punishment. But this is all a bit of a speculation and there's no historical evidence to suggest this. But because there is a lot of confusion around what happened to Ulfasa at the end of his life, this theory has persisted throughout history for some reason. So, Birger Jarl is now actually... Birger the Jarl. 
He seems to have been so powerful at this point that there was no real contest. Uh, instead, it was just fairly obvious that he should become Jarl. First of all, because he's from the Bielbu family, who, I mean, hello, Jarl is like their middle name. Uh, adding to that, he's the king's brother-in-law, and he's been in charge of all these important missions, all the way from solving domestic disputes to going off to Finland and Novgorod, and now he's been putting down domestic revolts. So, yeah, he, he's just the man. Yes, and here he is. He's now got the job, uh, probably in his late 30s and more like early 40s, and he's now the man in Sweden. He was a powerful person before, but from the day he becomes Jarl to the day he dies, there's absolutely no question about where the ultimate power ruling Sweden lies, and that's with him, with Birja. He does remain loyal to King Eric and doesn't try to overthrow him in any way, but he does wield a lot of executive power, so to speak, on the king's behalf. And he's off to a busy start. No sooner is the Battle of Spalsetra over and it's time for an important church meeting at Hjenninge. Now, church meetings, that might not sound very important to you, but this is not an hour of cake and cucumber sandwiches in the church hall to talk about this year's nativity play. No, no, no. This is a meeting that will solidify elements of the Swedish judicial system as well as have a huge impact on the life of members of the clergy. Yes, because the Hjenninga Mörtet, the meeting at Hjenninga, takes place on the 1st of March 1248. And in reality, it probably lasts longer than a day, but that's just the day that's recorded. Hjenninga is a village in Östergötland, so in fact it's quite close to the village of Bjelbu, where Birja grew up and where the family's ancestral home is. This meeting is extra important because there's also a papal presence at the meeting. The Pope has sent his representative, Wilhelm of Sabina, or even Wilhelm of Modena, as he's sometimes called, to be there. Now, to understand why a church meeting and the presence of a papal legate is so important, we must remember what a strong political force the papacy is and the whole Catholic Church was at the time. The church and the pope, since he's the head of the church, united Western Europe during the Middle Ages, and that was a unity that went beyond just the religious sections of society. It also helped inspire political unity and influenced law and policymaking. Of course, as we saw last time around, the Chancellor of Sweden during Eric XI's Regency Council period was Bishop Bengt, a religious figure fulfilling a major political role in the country. In our Law and Order episodes, we talked about how influences from the Roman Catholic Church changed the Swedish legal system, and how some aspects of the legal system, what we might call today civil law, was not actually ruled over by the state, but by the church. And the church, both in the sense of the entire Catholic Church as a whole, and in the sense of individual churches and parishes, were also very wealthy. This is because they levied their own taxes, they had lots of land, and they collected gold and fancy stuff. Bioyal knew that the best thing to do was to stay friends with the church, and to find a balance of power and use the network of contacts that this pan-European church gave you access to and use that for your advantage. That's why the meeting at Hjenninger was so important. We will talk more later about Bjørjajal as a lawmaker and how he was very keen on instituting national laws that protected people and places and laws that were the same everywhere in Sweden. But for now, it's probably enough to say that at Hjenningemöte, Bjørjajal formalizes Roman law as the basis for the Swedish legal system. But the Hjenningemöte is first and foremost a meeting about church matters. The papacy, through their representative, Wilhelm of Sabina, wants to strengthen the power of the different bishoprics in Sweden. After all, these bishoprics are the extended arm of the papacy in the country, so that's why they think it's important that they are 
powerful and work well. And most historians argue that the papacy succeeded in this. Perhaps the most tangible thing that came out of the meeting was the de facto implementation of celibacy in the church in Sweden. Celibacy had long been a key part of ecclesiastical life in the Catholic Church in Europe. Bishops, priests and monks, anyone really who was ordained and worked for the church, should live in celibacy. But Sweden had been very bad at actually implementing this. <laughs> um, even though by this point the Catholic Church has a very strong presence in the country and has done for a few hundred years by now. After all, Sweden's so far from the centre of power in Rome, and, well, we can only assume that the priests thought it was nice to share their lives with someone, have a wife and kids, and if they could get away with it, they would. Now it is time to put an end to this. Wilhelm of Sabina has a message from the Pope to all the priests and bishops in Sweden, and that message is basically, enough is enough, no more sleeping with women, no more having wives, and that's final. The Swedes didn't seem too happy with this, especially not the priests themselves, but it seems to have been one of those things that they were just forced to accept in order to remain on good terms with the papacy. Uh, we can only imagine Biyoyal telling all the priests that, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, I know this sucks, but come on, you need to stop sleeping around and leave your wives so that I can make sure that the Pope keeps liking us. I mean, come on, guys, do it for the sake of politics. In the end, these bishops accepted the ruling from Rome and Wilhelm of Sabina got his way. Biryoyal was also then able to market himself as someone who the church can deal with and get things done. After this meeting, Biryoyal might have even gone over to Finland again. Uh, we're not entirely sure about that, and neither are the historians. Remember, there was, or perhaps still is to this day, a mix-up with the dates, where some sources say that the events of the Finland and Novgorod campaign in 1238-1239 actually took place in 1248-1249. Um, and there is evidence that suggests Bergen might have even been in Finland, or at least away from the royal centre of power at this point, due to what happens next. So maybe had gone to Finland again, uh, we don't really know. All throughout the 1240s, Birja has been involved in the events on the other side of Scandinavia, though, namely in Norway. Norway has been going through very turbulent times for probably half a dozen of our episodes and almost a century now, and this has spilled over time and time again and has affected Swedo-Norwegian relations as well. Back in 1241, Birger Jarl acted as King Eric's representative in negotiations with the Norwegian King Håkon. Ulf Vasa, who was Jarl back then, was keen to maintain peace with Norway, even though Norwegian troops had attacked Sweden. However, in 1241, negotiations didn't lead to a lasting peace. Um, so there was, there was bubbling tensions mm -hmm. after 1241 for quite a while. But now, when we get to 1249, Birger has his Jarl hat on, and he succeeds in securing a peaceful resolution to the hostilities with Norway at the Treaty of Lerdusa. Lerdusa is a village in Vestergötland, and at this point, it's pretty much Sweden's most western point. And interestingly enough, it's not actually on the coast, because Sweden has no western coast yet. What is today the west coast of Sweden, at this point, is Norwegian or Danish territory. Norway comes all the way down to the point where it meets Denmark, and there's no Swedish west coast on the side of the country. Lerdusa sits on the shores of the Yurta River, but from here you can actually access the sea to the west, because the river goes all the way out to the sea, and that makes Lerdusa Sweden's main point for trading out west at this time. In order to secure this treaty with Norway, Birger plays the old, let's marry some of our kids with one another so that we can become family and therefore less likely to fight each other card. It needs to be quite a big card to fit all that on. Um, but it was a popular card. It was a popular card. They played that card a lot in medieval times. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And in this instance, Birger throws his own family into the game and marries off his daughter Rikissa to Håkon Håkonsson the Young, who was the Norwegian king's son and heir. 
Rikissa was actually only 11 at the time when her dad uses her as this bargaining chip in foreign politics. So uh, we're not entirely sure how happy she was about this. But um, it was probably coming at some point or another. So just get on with it was probably what her dad said, unfortunately. Um, So, yeah, that's what's going on at the moment. Birger is busy with foreign politics, both in the East and in the West. And this is where we got to in the last episode. So we've all caught up just in time for King Eric to die on the 2nd of February, 1250, just a few years after Birya officially becomes Jarl. Oh, sad times. King Eric is only 34 years old when he dies, so that's quite young, even for the time. Uh, We don't know what he dies from, but we know he doesn't die in a battle or anything like that. He dies from natural causes. We just don't know what those causes were. King Eric will go down in history with a somewhat unfortunate or actually really quite mean nickname. Uh, he will be known as Eric den Lispe och Halte, which in English would be Eric the Lisp and the Lame. It is a rather mean and rather ableist name because it most likely derives from the fact that he might have had a speech impediment and an unknown condition or injury that made him walk differently. Uh, But we don't know what these impediments and or injuries might have been. Uh, They're not mentioned in any sources of the time. Instead, it's the Eric Chronicle, which was written almost a hundred years after he died and was quite negative towards his reign in general, that describes him as this lisp and lame character. And this seems to have stuck as a name throughout history, unfortunately, even to the point where I know also when you were, we were talking about the episode beforehand, you uh, remembered that he was called this uh, when you were learning about the Middle Ages in middle school. Uh, he was called this in the textbooks or something you said. Yeah, in, in our textbook, it said King Eric den Lesbo Halte. Like, that was the official name that he went by. But like we said, it's a mean nickname that aims at mocking a potential disability and we think it should be left in history and not carried on. So that's why we've just called him King Eric or Eric the Eleventh in in our podcast. Yes, but unfortunately for him, uh, he's dead now at this point and he leaves no heirs. His marriage to Katarina has resulted in no children So there's no natural heir in the family. Not only that, but Eric was the last surviving male member of the Eric dynasty. In the previous episode, the Sverk dynasty had died out on the male line, so this is it, really. Yeah, you're right. Uh, We're kind of at the end of a historical chapter. Unintentionally, probably. Uh, There's no evidence to suggest that the two families meant to die out, but they did. And here we are. What's to come, or rather, who's to come on the throne of Sweden? Yes, and that's the question that everybody in politics in Sweden at the time would have been asking themselves. Or perhaps there wasn't, because there's one man who's risen to power over the course of the last two decades, and he will want to be a part of this. But not just want to be a part of it, he is a part of it, because he's the Jarl of the kingdom, and of course it's Berger Jarl, and he's absolutely involved. Now, we're not quite sure because, again, there's that mix-up of dates, but the Eric Chronicle says that Birjo was in Finland when King Eric died. Wherever he was, he hurries back to Sweden because there's now a battle for the throne to sort out. Or, well, there's no military battle, but there is a political one. Again, we don't know the details, but looking at it in hindsight, there seems to have been three possible contenders for the throne. The first is Philip, the other son of Knut the Tall. His brother Holger might be dead, but Philip is still around somewhere in Sweden. He's also a leading member of this Volkung faction that we've talked about, so he's probably quite keen to take the throne and move Sweden in a different direction. Then there's a man called Knut. Knut is the son of a powerful nobleman called Magnus Borka, and he's a great-grandson of famous Jarl Birjabrusa, so he's got a bit of that mighty Bielbu family connection going for him. 
And then finally, there's Valdemar, Birger Jarl's own son. Now, remember, Birger is married to Ingeborg, the newly deceased king's sister. So Valdemar, their son, is the king's nephew, albeit from uh, the female side of the family, and is the closest male relative around. This is really what Valdemar has got going for him in the battle for the throne. He's the closest male relative to the previous king, and he's the one with the strongest blood connection to the last reigning dynasty, the Eric dynasty, albeit on his mother's side, plus the fact that his dad is the Jarl, who has really been running the country for the last five years or so. There are also children of King Eric's other sister, Sophia, who is married to the Lord of Rostock. Uh, that couple have two sons, uh, but they're both around 10 years old and very much more German than Swedish, so they don't seem to have been in the picture at all. Instead, it's Birjol's son, Valdemar, who seems to be a strong contender. Again, we don't know quite how it happened, but it's no stretch of the imagination to assume that Birjol played a uh, the nepotism card here and seeing as he was the y'all and the person with probably the most political influence in the country, well, he made his own son king. Uh, this is one of the major moments in Swedish history and will have repercussions for many years to come. Yes, as Valdemar is duly elected king and succeeds his maternal uncle on the Swedish throne in 1250. We can only guess what Valdemar thought of this himself because just like his uh, distant relatives, he's also only 10 at the time. Bjørjöjöl has worked to put his 10-year-old son on the throne. This ensures that not only does he naturally stay on as Jarl because... I mean, if you're 10, you're not really going to fire your dad. Uh, he is also the dad of, yeah, a very young new king. Essentially, this is a power grab by Bjorn. There is no regency council this time. It's simply Bjorn making all the decision, putting a 10-year-old kid on the throne. Yes, and everything you read about Birgal in both contemporary sources and what later historians have said about him, it's quite clear that he never put himself forward as king. He knew he didn't have the at least fake family lineage to go back and claim this. He wasn't related to the royal family as directly as his son was. So he didn't want the crown, he wanted the power, and by making his son king, he kept that power that he's had for quite some time now. Yeah, because whilst Valdemar is busy, I don't know, building pillow forts and collecting worms and everything else that you do when you're 10, it's Birio who actually rules the kingdom. Valdemar takes a quick break from being a kid when he's crowned king in Linköping Cathedral in 1251. But then he goes back to being a kid. He doesn't really do anything. It's his dad who's in charge. And that will actually remain the case for much of Valdemar's life, really. Indeed, and it's not going to be easy to be the one who grows up in the shadow of a father like Birger Jarl, but more on that in the next episode, because uh, that's where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, Birger Jarl has had an interesting life so far, with his steady rise to power, marrying into power, but also using his skills in negotiating, his military skills campaigning in the east, and defeating local rebellions, before finally becoming Jarl, subduing more rebellions, and making his own son king. Uh, even with that, though, it's only just getting started, and there's much more to come in the life of this man. There certainly is, and it's like his life isn't just the life of one man, it's also the story of Swedish rule and Swedish politics for much of the latter half of the 1200s. So we will pick up here in two weeks' time. And until then, don't forget to follow us on social media and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, we've actually had two new lovely five-star reviews that we are going to read out. Uh, do you want to go first, Chris? Yes, and this is from Dude of the Mountain, which is an excellent name. <laughs> 
and it says, five stars, amazing show. As an American with a lot of Swedish ancestors, I wanted to know more about the history of Sweden. This podcast has been a great way to do that. I listen to an episode every morning on my way to work until I get caught up. I just finished episode 26 this morning. I really like the episodes that are recorded outdoors because the sounds from the environment make it into the show. So this is a perfect episode to read out this review because that's just what we've done. Detta fredag mina bekanta. Insert IKEA frog meme here from Tura Lund. So thank you so very much. That's an excellent review. Uh, you possibly have caught up by now. Uh, I posted this late June and this will be mid July. So hopefully you're listening to this not live, but you know, close to the release. And I uh, hope you enjoyed the outside recording at the start of the episode. Yeah, thank you for that review. And we've had another lovely five star review this time from uh, the Emerald Island from the Republic of Ireland. This is from Anjou Ship. I hope I'm pronouncing your username okay there. Uh, who writes a great listen. Loving this podcast, guys. Please keep it up. Love from Ireland. So sending all the way to Ireland some Swedish love back. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that lovely review. Thank and, you. Love uh, Ireland. as uh, a strong Scandi connection there. There's some Viking heritage. Yeah, not too many Swedish Vikings, but definitely uh, a lot of Norwegians and uh, some Danes. There was a bunch of friends of mine went to, there's a Viking museum in Dublin and they had a little Viking cuddly toy doll that you could buy. And my friend Taff bought it because the doll looked exactly like me. Excellent. Did they give it to you or did they buy it for themselves? No, they sent a picture of it to me and then, yeah, I don't know what Taff did with it. I didn't get the doll. Oh, that's disappointing. But yeah, lovely connection there to Ireland. Uh, great place. Yeah, I didn't see when I last went to Ireland in oh, 2015. Went to visit my friend in Galway, Marat, who uh, occasionally listens to the podcast. Might not have caught up yet. But um, I didn't see any Viking things then. So I think I, I missed out, clearly. But... For wherever you're listening to us from, thank you so much. I keep leaving reviews. It means a lot. helps us get noticed. Yes, and apparently we were third on the history podcast list in Venezuela earlier in the month. So say hello to them also. Vale, bueno. Saludos a todos en, en Venezuela. Nos alegra mucho que ustedes eh, les gustan el podcast. But for now, it's goodbye from us in Stockholm. Bye-bye. Hey, doll.